one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome, fellow time travelers. How I love you. Great to have you with me as we hurtle through history together. I'd hate to do it alone. Big thanks to everyone who's signed up so far to my Patreon site. The support for the Patreon site, in part, makes this podcast possible. This podcast is and always will be free, uh, but the Patreon site helps to make that possible. It's fantastic getting your help and support, and I do appreciate it. I'm not just saying that. It's an absolute, hand-on-heart, honest fact. I appreciate the interest and the contribution made by every single ever-loving one of you. So thank you. If you're not a member yet and you want to join, go to patreon.com and look for me by name, Neil Oliver, uh, and sign up. Why wouldn't you? Every week you'll get a new and exclusive video which I film here at my home in Stirling. The films are an eclectic mix, I like that word, eclectic, about how I see the present day intersecting and interacting with what's happened in the past. I guess you would call it history and comment with a touch of my philosophy of life. Get me. Hopefully the videos are always thought-provoking. That's what Paul and I aim for anyway. Right, now it's time for this week's love letter to the British Isles. So, as the countdown around the world begins, get ready to celebrate nothing less than a new millennium. Cue the music. Man's reach must always exceed his grasp, else what's a heaven for? In this episode, we stand on a precipice ready to jump from one age into another. Some think it will lead to chaos and catastrophe. Others believe it's the dawn of a second coming of you-know-who. As the dials turn and the nines mutate to zeros, the world holds its breath. To mark the moment, Britain commissions a great architect to design a landmark building. Twelve towers represent twelve months of the year. A diameter of 365 metres signifies every single day. It costs a Queen's ransom. What does this building tell us about Great Britain as it celebrates its entry into a new millennium? I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. Last week we sailed into the heart of a hurricane and saw bravery writ large. Where are we this week? Paul, we're in a place that's the polar opposite of the danger and selflessness and heart-wrenching tragedy we experienced last week. 
We're leaving the wild Cornish coast behind and heading to London as it prepares to party. Stars, the Prime Minister and royalty are ready with their streamers as the clock ticks down to a new millennium. We're by the side of the River Thames and we're inside the Millennium Dome. We are, Paul, in somewhere that's just instantly recognisable and it's been brought back to everyone's attention by Storm Eunice. Was that what she was called, the last one to hit? It's the Millennium Dome at Greenwich in London by the Thames and obviously the Millennium Dome, the Millennium Tent, as many people quite justifiably called it, renamed it, took a bit of a pounding and the fabric was fairly badly shredded, which is amazing really when you think it's been there for 20 years two years and it's taken this long so we're at the Millennium Dome which it's a kind of a funny one in the context I'll be quite honest with you in the context of the love letter to the British Isles I don't honestly love the Millennium Dome and never have but I do love I do love the thoughts that it inspires for me it's a place that made me think so while I, I don't particularly and never have uh, loved the entity the creation that is the Millennium Dome it, it made me think about Britain in a way that I appreciated. And so I do kind of doff my metaphorical cap at it and say, had it not been for this creation in this place made at this time, I might not have had these thoughts. So for that reason, I think it really matters. But I've always found it a strange confection. You can walk right over the top of it. Mm. And I have done that. Wow, have you, Paul? Wow. Yeah, and the view at the top, right across the cityscape of London, is amazing. Well, that's a lovely that's a lovely parallel appreciation. You're saying exactly the same thing in a different way for different reasons, in that the existence of the dome lets you see things that you might not otherwise have noticed. So we're both appreciating the same the same <laughs> the same creation. <laughs> for the same reasons. <laughs> so I love that. That's great. You could be forgiven the 22 years and, and whatever. There'll be you know, people, many, many people born since for whom the Millennium Dome's always been there and uh, you, you can't just necessarily take for granted that everyone remembers why it's there, what it represents. It's a vast structure um, and people might just have learned to take it for granted, especially people who were born after it was erected. Uh, but it was a big deal for you and me and the rest of us running up to the end of the second millennium AD. We were about to enter you know, the third millennium. Zero to one, zero to 1,000, then 1,000 to 2,000. It was pretty exciting because not many people's lifetimes of let's say on average, three score and 10, 70 years, they don't often overlap with a change of millennium. Change of a century, okay. But to change into the, the first number at the start of the, the date, changing over, it was, it was a big deal. And we have to address right away that purists, actually not purists, just people with a kind of an arithmetical, mathematical sense of accuracy, pointed out that the clicking over of 1999 to 2000 didn't technically, arithmetically mark 
the start of the new millennium because way back when there was no year zero people started counting from AD 1 and so properly the third millennium really started on the 1st of January 2001 so there was no year zero the Christian clock started counting from AD 1 so the third millennium started on January the 1st, 2001. And that's an awkward, uncomfortable, arithmetical, chronological fact. But we allowed ourselves to get carried away. And so for most people, it was too, I suppose it's like when you're driving your car and it flips over. If you've done 1,999 miles, it's exciting when it goes to two. And so we kind of all agreed that it was just too exciting to resist that when Earth's odometer rolled over from 1999 to 2000, we were all going to have a party wasn't really the start of the millennium. It really wasn't. It was 999 years into the second millennium. But hey, that's how it was. We, we agreed that we were going to go at that point. Christianity is still the biggest faith on the planet and Christian ideas still tend to predominate or, or, or certainly they did at that point. And there, w- there was a belief that the turning of the millennium for those of a, of a faith would herald, it would usher in an era of peace. Which is no bad hope. I'm all for it. You know, the sooner the era of peace dawns for the human species, the better as far as I'm concerned. And oh, would that it were so that it had come in with the advent of the year 2000. But at the same time, there were anxieties. Um, Something similar actually happened when the world moved from 999 to 1000. The last time there was a turn of millennium, there was a general belief, and it was promoted by the church, that Jesus was going to come back for his birthday and he was going to assess the situation. He was going to see how we'd been getting on. And the general suspicion on the point of the church was that he was not going to be thrilled with where we were. In 1000 AD, there would be a bunch of backsliding sinners. So there was a lot of anxiety, you know, a thousand years before the last turn of the millennium. So 999-1000, people thought... This isn't going to go well. He's going to come back and we're all going to get a kicking because we haven't been the best people. But of course, 999 became 1000 and nothing happened and the, and the church kind of got put back in its box a little bit, you might say. However, there was something similar happened when people thought, well, maybe, maybe turn to 2000, maybe this matters in that way. But, you know, as it turned out, Jesus did not come back. That much is demonstrably true. But there was a technological modern world preoccupation, which was the millennium bug. On most computers, the existence of the 20th century was marked just by two numbers, 99. You know, not 1999. And the background to the millennium bug was people predicting that when 1999 turned over into 2000, or rather, for computers, when it went from 99 to 00, that computers might confuse the year 2000 with the year 1900. And for reasons that I didn't really understand at the time, and I still don't understand now, there were predictions of chaos. Yeah, the great threat to aeroplanes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there were newspaper pages with those mock-ups of, you know, planes, if they happened to be in the air as 1999 became 2000, that their computers would go haywire and they'd fall out of the sky. 
And really, computers, it was predicted by some all across the place that computer systems were just going to crash, that there was going to be some kind of technological disaster. Planes were actually grounded. A lot of companies just thought it's not worth it. They actually had planes kept on the ground, parked on runways, you know, just to avoid the situation. But as it happened, as we all know, the dials turned, if you like, and all of the nines turned into zeros and nothing happened at all. Um, well, maybe maybe somebody would send an email and say that certain little things did happen, that there were glitches here and there, but there was nothing. There was nothing in the way of the kind of technological disaster that had been predicted. What did happen, obviously, in Edinburgh, where we're famous for our Hogmanay parties, or have been until lockdown cancelled them all, there was the mother of all parties in Edinburgh. And I believe I'm right in saying that something like, oh, I don't know, five tonnes of fireworks were launched in Edinburgh to celebrate the whole thing. Uh, so that was that was pretty spectacular. I, I've spent a lot of time in New Zealand, the other side of the world, the Antipodes, as they call them. And east, even, I mean, New, New Zealand is, is east enough, but east of New Zealand, there's the Chatham Islands, a tiny little archipelago in the South Pacific, and they watched the sunrise and regarded themselves as being the first people to see the coming of 2000. You know, they felt that they were the first people to see the sunrise above the horizon, which was pretty exciting. Conversely, on the other side of the coin, people on America's west coast, California, they would be the last. But it depends where you imagine the world is. What's east, what's west? It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? But let's say that the you know America's West Coast were the last people to, to greet the advent of 2000. In Bethlehem, the place where Jesus was born, the fella about whom the turn of the millennium was all about, let's not forget. In Bethlehem, 2000, significant number, doves, white doves were released into a sky that, you know, as it turned out, cared not a jot. It was just another day in paradise as far as the doves were concerned. In Rome, the Vatican specifically, you know, the, the Pope is the, is the Bishop of Christ on earth, and the Pope preached a blessing from that familiar little balcony in the Vatican. And God love him, he called on the people of the world to set a course for a thousand years of harmony. It's just a lovely idea, however uh, unlikely. As I say, the first four minutes of the, of the new year in Edinburgh. I saw five tonnes of fireworks go off in Edinburgh. The crowd, it's impossible to count it now. There was footage of it at the time, but hundreds of thousands of people were on Princess Street and winding down the mound. You know, they were just, the place was just a sea of humanity. I'm not sure, but I suspect that one was probably the biggest Hogmanay party the, the city had I'd seen up until that point and I'd be surprised if anything bigger has happened since. It was a huge deal, not just in Edinburgh, it was a big, big deal. But in London, you know, back to the Millennium Dome, there was a bit of a dampener, a bit of a reminder that same old, same old. Thousands and thousands of people, not surprisingly, had queued to get into the Millennium Dome. There was supposed to be a great celebration there. The Millennium Dome, the idea was conceived during the time of John Major's government, John Major's conservative government. So it's hatched then, and having been hatched, it started to grow like Topsy. 
It was built up hugely by Tony Blair's New Labour. I can't even remember now exactly what John Major had had planned, but Tony Blair picked up the ball and ran with it. And he said in a speech, and I quote, we will say to ourselves, this is um, a speech in the Royal Festival Hall that he delivered on the 24th of February, 1998. He said, we will say to ourselves with pride, this is our dome, Britain's dome. And believe me, it will be the envy of the world. That's a cracker, isn't it? Yeah, it will be the envy of the world. I've yet to meet anybody who wishes they had a dome like ours. Uh, and, and the truth of it is, no disrespect to the architects and the people that put in all the time and effort to erect the thing, but it was bungled. The whole project was bungled in almost every conceivable way. The dome worked, of course it did. It was well designed and, and built. It's not a dome. That's the first thing to say about it. What's there in Greenwich was designed by architect Richard Rogers, and it's a tent. It's held up by cables which are attached under high tension to 12 300-foot-high towers. So there's 12 towers that surround it, and the, the cables there hold the structure and give it form. A dome is an ancient concept. A dome is a self-supporting work of masonry. It holds itself up. And so the fact that the, what's there in the form of the Millennium Dome is actually held up by high-tension cables means that it's not a dome. It is what it is, but that which it is is not a dome. It's a tent. That said, and I don't know why they, why they called it a dome, it was silly because it was sort of posing a challenge, really, that was easily refuted. What it is is a very clever creation. The fabric in its entirety, that fabric, which, as I've mentioned already, was so shredded by Storm Eunice, actually weighs less than the air encased within. Get your head around that. You know, so the bubble of air that is encased by the structure weighs more than the fabric that's wrapped around the outside. That single fact is really the one that I take away. I think that's incredible. <laughs> that's the thing I would shout about. I've mentioned that there's 12 towers that hold the thing erect. That's not an accident. The 12 towers represent the months of the year. And the inside diameter, the circle beneath the structure, is exactly 365 metres across. So that's one metre for each day of the year. And it sits on what people that have seen Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and whatever, the prime meridian, which is that imaginary line which runs from the North Pole to the South Pole. And it's where everyone on the planet counts east and west from. It's where we count time. 12 o'clock midday at Greenwich. Everyone counts their time relative to the Greenwich meridian, the prime meridian. It's a line that's invisible, but it does matter. So it passes through Greenwich. Technically, from a cartographer's point of view, it marks zero degrees of longitude. So it's, you count east and west from that line that passes through Greenwich, passes through the site of the Millennium Dome. So there's a lot of stuff about it that's remarkable. It's quite something. It really is quite something. The idea was 
Um, if people know about Crystal Palace, which was the, the sort of pinpoint, the focal point of the Great Exhibition of 1851, you know, which celebrated Britain and Empire and all the rest of it. That kind of, that air of triumph, triumphalism, or just celebration of the Great Exhibition was supposed to be there in the Millennium Dome. It was supposed to be a focal point where we would, as the British people, we would say, this is us. Here we are. After 2,000 years, here we are, and this is who we are. These are the things that matter to us. But there's that old line about man's reach must always exceed his grasp, else what's a heaven for? Well, it was made manifest in the Millennium Dome. The aspirations exceeded what was actually achieved. If proof of proof were needed, were on, the, on that night of all nights, when the punters were, were actually invited in their thousands to come along just as the clocks clicked around to mark the new millennium and they were supposed to go in and celebrate and all the rest of it, it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I mean, it cost £800 million to build. Imagine that. £800 million, maybe more. No one was ever quite sure exactly how much had been spent. And it only ever did attract a fraction of the visitors it was supposed to. And, you know, and every critic that lined up before and after the opening night kind of poured scorn on it. Inside there were all sorts of exhibits and displays. They had titles like Who We Are and What We Do and Where We Live all spread across this vast interior. Expectations had been raised and they just weren't met. So on that night of all nights, the thousands, the tens of thousands turned up with their tickets and it was just bungled. Her Majesty, the Queen, was there, Tony Blair and the Cabinet and all sorts of other VIPs and they, they were quickly whisked inside in time for the clocks to turn. But hundreds and then thousands of ordinary people found themselves in inexcusable log jams trapped behind security turnstiles and gates people were left waiting for up to four hours Can you imagine you're trying to get into something for midnight and it was three and four o'clock in the morning before some people got in and it was just a disaster it was supposed to be a crowning glory you know there was a bright spotlight turned on britain for that moment and it was just it was just a bungle and so the net effect was that the dome spent its first days and weeks as a national embarrassment Talk about a white elephant. That's what it was. But the thing was, bizarrely, unexpectedly, it came into its own, in a way. It was renamed the O2 in 2005. I'm sure most anyone under the age of 20 alive today won't think of it as the Millennium Dome. If they think about it at all, they'll call it the O2. And that was a product of its being taken over by an American entertainment company called Anschutz Entertainment Group, AEG. And it was became successful. You know, all those th- those exhibits, those fixed exhibits, who we are, what we do, where we live, the human body and all that, they were a damp squib. Nobody cared. Nobody went. But AEG made a success of it. And it's an irony, given that it was it was supposed to celebrate everything that was British, but it was only when everything that was British was scraped out <laughs> right back to the floor, right back to the the concrete floor. It was only then, when it was filled up with other ideas from the rest of the world, that it became a success. Now, I'm not entirely sure what that says, but it says something. It definitely rose from the ashes, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it it is a successful entity. But it makes you ask the question, the extent to which the people living here now 
do they care less about all the history of 2,000 years and more? Is that a fact? Were they not inclined to go to it because it was full of stuff they didn't care about? And it was only when it was stripped out and filled with other things that it seemed to so many people to begin to, to matter. I don't know. It was supposed to be a beacon. It was supposed to show that Britain was still great. John Major's Conservative government had wanted to show that, and then Tony Blair's New Labour, they wanted to say, you know, cool Britannia, Britain's great. Everyone was coming at it from the same direction, but it didn't seem to gel. It was a moment in time that invites us to consider the extent to which what, if anything, is still great about Great Britain. Now, I have my own ideas about that. I love the archipelago like nowhere else on earth, hence the love letter to the British Isles. But the Millennium Dome and the response to it, in part, invites us to think, you know, to what extent, what is Britain? What is Great Britain? What's great about it? Now, I know what I think is great about Great Britain, but more important is what everyone else. And, you know, there's 60-odd million, 70 million people living here. And if Britain is to be great, then it's what everyone else thinks. I would sign off by saying there was a Roman poet called Juvenal. He, in his own time, he saw and sensed the decline of vision and ambition in Rome, in the Roman Empire, during the first century AD. So right back at the beginning, 2,000 years ago, or right back at the point when the clock started ticking, Juvenal was asking questions. And he said, and I quote, the people that once bestowed commands, consulships, legions and all else, now concerns itself no more and longs eagerly for just two things, bread and circuses. Best part of 2,000 years ago, Juvenal was saying, do people really care about Rome anymore? Is Rome still the mother, the revered mother of us all? Or, in truth, are people just interested in bread and circuses? And there beneath the great circus tent of the Millennium Dome, we, the British, were invited to ask ourselves the same question. of devolution sweeps across the United Kingdom, creating assemblies in Northern Ireland and Wales and a new parliament in Scotland. At the end of Edinburgh's Royal Mile, construction begins on a building where Scots will gather to organise their own affairs. Oak, sycamore, stainless steel and Caithness stone. The finished design is celebrated, loved and despised in equal measure. And with a new parliament, song goes on. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. 
Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. Graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.